welcome to the latest episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. If you are a leader who is serious about building your leadership skills and transforming your organizational culture, you are in the right place. I'm Russell Strassen. And I'm Ken Cameron. Sometimes difficult conversations suck, but you need to have them. So in every episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast, we ask leaders about the most difficult conversations that they've had with their employees, coworkers, suppliers, customers, or even their bosses. We ask them how the F they managed to get through those challenging moments, all so that you can learn from their successes and from their missteps, all so that you can become a better leader. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about New Year's resolutions. And it's a subject on most people's mind at this time of year, making a number of resolutions, most of which they never keep. So we're going to uh, pose uh, a number of resolutions here that we are endeavouring to keep and would endeavour that you would look to keep on our behalf as well. So uh, it's a part, a part for us and part inspirational for you and maybe gets you thinking about some things that you could actually do in the new year. So, Ken, you wanted to kick us off with a particular quote just to get us into the, uh, into the frame of mind. Yes, I do. You know, I wanted to share a quote from one of my famous authors, who I favorite authors, who I think I've spoken about before on this podcast, named Neil Gaiman. And Neil Gaiman is a fantasy writer or and a little bit of a kind of modern fables kind of writer. And he's maybe best known for a series of illustrated comic books called uh, The Sandman. He's also really well known for uh, the Netflix, uh, sorry, the Amazon Prime television show called uh, American Gods, which was based on his novel of the same name, and a whole slew of books that are incredibly popular. He's um, an incredibly popular author. Um, his latest book was a collection of Norse mythology, which has been on the New York Times bestseller list for a really long time. But the reason I bring him up is that every year he posts a New Year wish on his blog. And there's one of these New Year wishes from uh, several years ago from uh, two, when, when was it exactly? I'm just looking for it here. I think it was back in uh, 2011, where it really stood out with me and that has been with me for this whole time. And so I'm going to share with you some of Neil Gaiman's words of wisdom. For this year, my wish is for each of us is small and very simple, and it's this. I hope that in this year to come, you make mistakes. Because if you are making mistakes, then you are making new things, trying new things, learning, living, pushing yourself, changing yourself, changing your world. You're doing things you've never done before, and more importantly, you're doing something. So that's my wish for you and for all of us, and my wish for myself. Make new mistakes. Make glorious, amazing mistakes. Make mistakes nobody's ever made before. Don't freeze. Don't stop. Don't worry that it isn't good enough or it isn't perfect. Whatever it is, art or love or work or family or life, whatever it is you're scared of doing, do it. Make your mistakes. Next year and forever. For many years, I took that quote and I put it on my desk right in front of my computer so that I was staring right at it. And I would I put it up at the beginning of the new year and then it stayed there for uh, multiple years in a row so that I could just stare at that, give myself permission to make mistakes. Because if you don't give yourself that permission to make mistakes, as he points out, you're not growing, you're not stretching yourself, you're not doing anything. 
You're uh, often paralyzed by the fear of being wrong, by the fear of what others might think of you if you step out on a limb, or the fear of simply um, if it not being perfect before you send it out into the world. So let's take some lessons from Gaiman, from um, other favorite authors out there like, um, like Seth Godin, who often talks about just ship it. Take what you're working on, put it in the mail, send it out to your clients, find out what's resonating, what isn't resonating, find out the mistakes that you've made, and then do another iteration. Correct it, send it out again, send it out again, and send it out again. In this day and age of instant printing, of the internet and of blogging, there's very little that you can't um, uh, rewrite or redo or send out another iteration of. I think that's a great sentiment to start with, Ken. I, I, I like that. I've always been a proponent of, of, you know, of making mistakes. You don't have to wait for everything to be perfect because it never will be. And if you're trying to wait for it to be perfect, it, you're never going to do it. You're just always going to, going to be. It's always going to be one of those things that you're going to be doing. And I think that can be very limiting for, for people. I think it's also true in this current day and age where we our comparisons with what others are doing because we see things, you know, we work on social media, particularly you know, Instagram or whatever, and we see these wonderful photos of people, you know, their latest holiday, their latest home renovation, the latest meal they cooked, whatever it happens to be, their latest job. And we look at that and we go, well, what I can do isn't like that. And so um, I, I, I won't do it because I can't post something that is as good as that so therefore I, w- I won't do it and i think that that's limiting for people and it, it really takes you into the you know, the re- a resolution that i i would have not just for myself but would encourage other people to think about is don't let your past dictate your future so if you've made a mistake in the past and something didn't go well that doesn't mean that that defines who you are or that you shouldn't try again you know, we've we've talk, talked on our um, you know podcast before about resilience, about keeping going, about never giving up, um, and your know, life as well as business is full of examples of people who gave up when they were just that bit close to, to being successful, or those people that kept going um, and tried again and again until they managed to get it to, until they got it right. Um, but I think this idea that the you know, people look at their past and give themselves limiting behaviours. Oh well, you know, I'm, I made a mistake, perhaps, or oh, I'm not very good at this, or oh, this happened to me in the past, and therefore I can never get over that. And obviously, there can be things that happen to people um, that are totally unfair, that that that, that really are setbacks that, that people shouldn't have to face, but they do. Um, but if we only look that that defines us, then it means that maybe something, something, somebody else did to us defines who we are. And therefore, we can never um, fulfill our, um, you know, I'd say destiny, it sounds rather grand, but we can never, never make the best of who we are because we're always looking back rather than looking forward. And this is something that resonated with me, particularly when I was been working at the Remand Center last year um, with uh, people who are awaiting release from prison. Um, and a lot of the uh, men there um, uh, talk about their regrets of what they've done with their life up to that point, uh, particularly the people that they've hurt, whether it was victims of crimes that they've committed, uh, and often their own family and friends and how they've let people down. Um, and one guy got very emotional when he was talking about the fact that his mother died while he was in prison and she never got to see him be a success. She only got to see him what he said be a failure. 
and that was something that he wanted to address. And it, it struck with me there that, and I'd said to them, you know, just because this is where you've been up to this point doesn't mean that that's where the story ends and doesn't mean that that's how the story continues in the next half of your life or a third of your life or whatever time you've got left. You know, the, things could have happened to you. You could have done stuff where you've messed up, but you don't have to let that define who you are going forward because you can write the next chapter in your story um, and it can be more positive. And if that chapter isn't, well, perhaps the one after that will be. So that's my, that's my thoughts on that. Those are some deep and profound thoughts, Russell. It's um, and how am I how am I supposed to follow up with that with a uh, with a, a New Year's resolution that which I confess is much more lighthearted. And a man and of much, your caliber, Ken. A man of your caliber will 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 find something. I'm sure. Well, I, I, I'm frankly, I'm just gonna, I, I'm just gonna uh, take a left turn and go in exactly the opposite direction. My my New Year's resolution suggestion for our listeners is 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 to be childish. Be playful, be um, less mature, be less responsible than um, what your instincts may be wanting to tell you. The and, and particularly in the workplace, I mean, I think it's really important that we. So many of us think of the workplace as a very sober-minded individual, a very, a very um, uh, unfun place to be. And yet, if we can bring play to the workplace, then then it's really important. It really helps engage employees in the workplace, and it really helps them do better work. And many of your listeners, you might be thinking, well, you know, that's all well and good for people like Ken who work in those creative industries, people like Russell who work as a facilitator, but me, I work in the serious business of business. You know, and you, you probably wouldn't be alone in thinking that. A, a lot of people view play as the opposite of work as something that's frivolous, as an activity that can fill in the leisure time when you're not attending to or working on the more serious concerns of business. But, you know, I found this great quote from a gentleman named Dr. Stuart Brown, who's the founder of the National Institute for Play. And he points out that the opposite of play is not work or business. The opposite of play is depression. And Dr. Brown says this, think about life without play. No humor, no flirtation, no movies, no games, no fantasy, and, 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 and. Try to imagine a culture or a life, adult or otherwise, without play. And that comes from a TED Talk that he did. And I'll try to remember to post the link to that TED Talk in the show notes for this show. But it's, it, he also then goes on in that, in that TED Talk to talk about studies that show that play and zest and delight in work creates better performance, that it increases social and emotional connections, increases psychological safety, and improves the like intrinsic motivation in your employees simply through the act of making work more pleasurable through play. Well, that's uh, you say that was just sort of frivolous, but I think that's pretty profound, Cam. What you put it, what you've said there, because there there is that part, isn't it? By by doing something that is that, that seems not serious, or it, it's having some fun with something. You know, we we sell our workshops, don't we? It's okay to have fun. You can enjoy yourself. You can try something out here. And what often we're doing with our uh, forum theatre for business is having people act out. You know, they're being with an actor. They're doing something that, you know, there's some, there's some humor there. It's, but they're learning a lot from it. And they're also having some, 
you know, some play while they're doing it and being given the permission, it's okay to do this, it's okay to make mistakes, as you said earlier. Um, and it's not a bad not a bad thing. You know, yeah, I'd hate to think of a life that had nothing. You know, no movies, no, no going and playing in the park with your kids, no going and playing with a dog, no doing something that isn't super serious all the time. Yeah, what sort of place would that be? A very depressive one. But on that thought... We're going to take a little intermission here for a moment. When we get back from our advert break, we're going to hear about um, other resolutions that we might have that we're going to float there for you to think about. Um, So we'll be back in a flash. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. One of our clients wants to do the pitch for us. That client is Dean Jetson, who's operations manager at Volker Seven Highways. Dean was a guest on our podcast in episode number 36. And at the end of his interview, he surprised us by telling our listeners just what he thought of our work. Russ and Ken, I appreciate the work your team does with managing difficult workplace conversations. Volker Stevan has had the pleasure of going through that a few times now. And I know some other parts of our companies are also engaging that with yourselves and Blue Gem. And just for the audience's information, We know in a work environment, it goes without saying that there's different views and perspectives out there. Agreements, disagreements, conflicts, etc. are going to take place. And what we've really benefited from, from the work your team does, is that you address these conflicts or disagreements. You work with the company, you address their specific conflicts and disagreements, and you make it a real-life setting by bringing actors and mediating and keeping that context going and the discussions going. So... It prepares our leaders in Volker 7 and others in the leadership role to be ready for these conversations when they do take place. So really appreciate the work you gentlemen do as well in your team. We had no idea that Dean was going to say that, but we're really glad that he did. For years, Ken and I have been leading these workshops on how to navigate difficult workplace conversations. Because we use live actors to play your difficult employee, customer, supplier, or boss, It's as close to the real thing as you can get without having the real problematic individuals in the office with you. And let me tell you, it's a whole lot psychologically safer. If you'd like to find out more about our live workshops or our online courses, then head on over to INeedToEffingTalkToYou.com. And now, back to the episode. Welcome back to the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. We're speaking today with Russell Stratton and myself, Ken Cameron, about New Year's resolutions. It's that time of the year when so many of us are looking ahead and to the new year and making those grand uh, aspirational resolutions, which we know we are fated not to fulfill. Uh, things like going out to the gym, things like eating less, despite the fact that we've just eaten a whole ton over the holidays, the fact about um, uh, bringing more zest and focus to our workplace, and all of these things that so many resolutions that just fall flat in their face come February. So what Russell and I thought we'd do is try to share with you some resolutions that are simple, that are easy to keep, but that can also bear fruit in your workplace. And so, Russell, you had another resolution that you wanted to share with our listeners. Yeah, so I think, too, I suppose following on a theme from earlier on, but um, remembering that the only person's behavior you can change is your own. So I'd like to look at this from two angles. The first is about resolutions. And sometimes the reason that the resolutions fail is because we set this really big target for ourselves. And then when we don't meet it, 
we beat ourselves up, metaphorically speaking, and say, oh, oh, a terrible failure, I am, I didn't do that. And that could be something from, you know, I want to go to the gym more, I want to go out and uh, spend time or more time with my family, or I want to paint more, read more, whatever it might be. Um, and one of the things in there to con- be able to change your own behaviours is to do it in small steps. So rather than say, just on the gym example, okay, I'm going to go to the gym five times next week, and that's after the first week ends up being three times, then one time, then never again, is a thought of saying, well, I can do one small behaviour. and Perhaps I will go for a walk for five minutes, the first thing in the morning before I do anything else. Because I can probably do five minutes. I might not do an hour in the gym, but I can do five minutes. And if I do that five minutes, then perhaps then I can build that up to 10 and 15, and then it might be um, I can go and you know, go to the gym for an hour. So it's just by taking those incremental steps that we can control and we're more likely to do than setting something that's sort of more unrealistic. And the second thing was is particularly when it comes to our behavior and our interactions and relationships with other people. You know, stop complaining about what other people do. Yeah. And think about, well, what can I do? How can I make a difference? Because I can always sit and complain, whether it's, you know, somebody that you work with, whether a co-worker, whether it's your boss, uh, whether it's your partner, whether it's your kids, whoever it might be, people you come, and complain about how they are. But you can't control how they are, but you can control how you are. So it could be that you change how you're going to behave towards them and see whether that has a an effect because you're in control of that. And in the ultimate case is perhaps I don't have contact with them. And instead of complaining about them, I just don't have any interactions with them and therefore um, it in some ways um, resolves part of the problem. But it's just to bear in mind that we, it's easy for us to blame other people. It's easier for us to find reasons why, you know, why they behave the way they do. Well, why don't we change the way we behave? Because we can control that. We can't control them. And sometimes that gives us that feeling of control back that some that otherwise we don't feel that we have. Mm. That's a really challenging resolution um, f- uh, for me to remember all the time because I'm constantly um, trying to um, either berate myself for what for somebody else's behavior or what somebody else has done or the fact that I, I'm or that I'm always trying to leap into a situation in an attempt to effect change on others or change their behavior on others. And so it's really important for me to remember that the only behavior that I can change is my own. That's a really useful piece of information for, and advice for me. Yeah, there was a linked piece to that that I, I like to share from my late mother-in-law who made a, a point to my wife um, shortly before she died um, saying that it was only later in life that she realized she should stop worrying about what other people thought of her and just do do things how she thought. And it's a slight tangent away from what I was talking about earlier on, but the idea that I just, I, you know, I can control what I do and I'm going to do that. I didn't stop worrying what other people think because she said there were two things. One, it realized it didn't really matter what other people thought a lot of time. And more importantly, she really said, I realized that for, 85% of the time, people weren't thinking about me at all. So why was I worrying, spending all this time in my life, she said earlier in her life, worrying about how she came across to other people and what they thought about it, and really thinking, the one, they weren't thinking about it, and secondly, even if they were, she couldn't do anything about that. She could only control what she did. So you know, I'll, I'll give a shout-out to, to, to her for, uh, for those, those words, of, words of wisdom. 
You know, there's also something, um, again, tangential, but that um, this inspires in me is the notion that the only person's behavior you can change is your own is, is something that um, my wife as a therapist often deals with with some of her clients in that, you know, they're either trying to change other people's opinions or just as often if, if a parent has a child who's struggling with issues, whether the child is struggling with anger management or whether the child is struggling with um, uh, ADD or any, any kind of misbehavior or acting out or even drug addiction, there's often the child is reacting to something that's in the parent themselves. Either the parent is um, has their own anger management issues they need to look at, or the parent has their own addiction issues they may need to look at. It may not be about drugs. It may not be about alcohol. It may be about work, or it may be about other things that are that is taking them away from their relationship with the child. So there's often the advice in many many therapeutic circles is when there's an issue with another, look look to yourself first. And I find that that advice, it's amazing how often that advice also relates to a workplace scenario. As a leader, if you've got employees who are um, either misbehaving or who are not accountable, maybe the first question that a leader should be asking is, in what ways am I myself not being accountable? In what ways am I illustrating poor behavior that these employees are either copying or learning from or feeling that they can get away with? Or if it's not accountability, in what ways am I saying one thing and behaving in another that are then giving them permission to do something similar? I think think that's sage advice, Ken. It's about, you know, if you're encountering a problem, whether it's in personal life or in work, perhaps the first thing is to stop and say, okay, how am I behaving in this situation? And look to yourself first before you start telling other people what they need to be doing and how they need to be doing things differently. Yeah. Sage advice. That's high praise. Thank you for using that particular adjective. It's a, one that is rarely applied to me, but which I, I really appreciate in this instance. So, so, so thank you. You know, it's I all those reason. Neil Gaiman. I was going to say, Ken, it's all those Neil Gaiman books and his book about, uh, you know, Nordic, um, uh, 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 Nordic legends. That's what it is. That's where you get to. You've got, you've got the sage advice from there. That's it. You know, there, although there are rarely sages in Neil Gaiman's work, where there are rarely wise wizards and wise individuals. There's often, you know, there's often people, fish out of water elements who are like kind of fumbling their way through some sort of underworld or netherworld that the, uh, um, ordinary people caught in extraordinary circumstances tends to be one of his, uh, one of his tropes. Much like most of us. I feel like that most of the time. Um, <laughs> I wanted to share another resolution with our listeners and because the, the other resolution I want to share the, is being selfish. I wanted to encourage people in this year that's coming up is to be more selfish. And by that, I mean to, to, to create more boundaries in your life, to be more firm about those boundaries, to be more articulate about those boundaries. And certainly there may be times when that barrier between work and life tends to dissolve when you set up a boundary and you, you have to put in those extra hours or those extra times, but be clear about the choice that you're making. You know, there's a, a phrase that's often uh, used so ubiquitously in the, in the past decade or more, the, the work-life balance phrase, which I think so many of us feel that phrase is either misleading or an outright lie, because work-life balance implies that there actually is a scale that, when it's out of balance, will somehow eventually magically right itself. 
right? The term balance suggests some sort of like quid pro quo or that some sort of compensation would be following. Like the idea that if, if you've ever experienced that thing where after you step up to the plate to pull an all nighter or to work through the long weekend, and then instead of it being balanced in some way, you find yourself back to work on Monday morning, back to a 40 hour work week or 50 hour work week or 55 hour work week, as if nothing unusual had happened. And the experience of that all nighter or working through the weekend is just kind of wiped out. There is very little balance in those kinds of situations. And so you have to be strict about it. You have to create those boundaries. And maybe if you're in a position where you're working for another and you're asked to pull an all-nighter or, 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 or work late or to work through the weekend, then you know be clear about that boundary and say, that's great. And then when does the balance write itself? When uh, w- will I then come in later tomorrow? Or um, maybe I'll come in at the same time tomorrow because I have, what I actually want is to come in later on Friday or, or, or leave early on Friday because I've got something with my kids or so, so some other piece of that life balance that you want to be kind of looking at. So I, I think that that's an important piece to keep in mind. I think so that's a great point, Ken. I think the other thing to remember for people is that work-life balance means different things to different people just in mm, terms yeah. of what their life is. And that might be, you know, um, they they have different – you know, stressors, they have different interests, they have different things in terms of how they balance their life. Um, and again, it's one of those things that we see people espousing the, you know, the great things of this is what life balance looks like. And well, that's what it looks like for them. And if it works for them, great, but it doesn't work for everybody in that way. Um, so uh, the, the thing I would, would, would echo in there is about being selfish is find some time for yourself. Find some time for yourself to do something that you like doing. And for some people that might be work but just a different kind of work you know they like on a different project you know a number of people that come home and you know then they start renovating their house that's what they like doing because they find that relaxing they're still working but they like doing it so if it's something you like doing then you know fine to be be selfish and do what you like doing it doesn't have to be this archetypal well work-life balance is this is the same for everybody it has to look like this and I think the same can be true even within those working hours. Um, and maybe this ties to my earlier point about um, the play piece, but just uh, you're kind of alternating between different kinds of work over the course of the day. So you're not grinding through some unpleasant task the entire time. I have an unpleasant task that I have to do in my workplace, which is the, 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 the quarterly accounting. You know, the match, the bank reconciliation, the matching the receipts to the visa statement, the making sure all these things have been claimed. Oh my God, it's such drudgery. And, you know, and I, I, and mostly it's drudgery because I can never find the receipts. You know, they're never in the, they're never in the same place. They're never in the, I I never seem to print them off correctly. Or if I do, there's always at least one or two that are missing. And then to top it all off, why, why do some companies make it so hard to find where the receipt is on the, on the website when I want to like download the, because they never mail it to you anymore. And so it's, it's never in the place that they say it is when you search, where do I find my receipt for MS office? Well, it's never where they say it is because they've moved it since the time that the help article was published. So it drives me bananas. How, what I've had to force myself to do is to do it in doses so that I'm not spending like a whole day doing this horrible task that, cause it really just does ruin the whole like day and evening as well. So I really need to learn to balance these different kinds of tasks. It's really hard to do as an entrepreneur, as I'm, I'm sure you're, as I'm sure you experience also, Russell, because you have the, uh, because the, the work demands are so constant and there's, and often as a solopreneur, there's only me to do it. 
Yeah, for, for, for sure. I mean, it's 100%. But I think it's also about Paisley rewarding yourself with something that you like to do. Yeah. If I do, if I get this to this point, then I can go and have this thing that I like doing. So I'm going to go and do that for a bit. And, you know, and I think the consequences of not doing so are really, really um, stunning. I, I found some some statistics from the University College of London, which I think you'll appreciate. It's just, just down the road from where you grew up, that, the, that found that people who work longer hours tend to be more anxious and depressed. They suffer from poor sleep, and they are more likely to suffer heart attack and stroke. Now, my sister died of a heart attack when she was only 40. So I want to make darn sure that I don't work myself to the point where I follow the same fate, suffer from a heart attack, or, or more likely a stroke, because I'm such a wound up individual, um, before my time is ripe. You know, So I want to be really careful about how I uh, balance myself in the new year that's coming up. Yeah, and then I think that yeah, I think that's always a, a, an important point, Ken, to put in that, because nobody's going to sit there and say, oh, well... Well, what happened with that inbox item that wasn't done at that point? That's not going to be what the focus is for people. So, you know, um, it's yeah, that, somebody else will pick that up. That will carry on. The work will still be there. It will just be done by somebody else. So, yeah. But you can't be replaced. That's totally, the thing. It's you true. can't be replaced. It's the true. I, I have yet to go to a funeral that. where the eulogy says he had inbox zero. And <laughs> that was his greatest accomplishment, <laughs> right? <It's> like, <laughs> that never happened. Yeah, you know, I still haven't heard back from him on that memo. Yeah, that was not the point. That was, uh, yeah. Okay, so the the final uh, resolution I have is is one for um, for us all, really, um, and that is to be precise with our language and stop misusing words or phrases out of context um, or expanding the definition of them in our mind beyond. A definition that 99% of the population would would understand, because I fear that when we do this, we take serious issues and we either devalue them or we make it difficult for people to reach a common understanding where they can actually have a conversation and hopefully find some action and resolution to move uh, issues forward. And one particular example which I've I've noticed um, quite prevalent is the use of the word racism. Now, I need to sort of put a caveat in here. Like everyone else, I accept that there are racists and that racism exists. And it's not a good thing. It's a very bad thing, and it's a very harmful thing to people when it happens. However, simply by calling everything potentially racist that you don't like doesn't solve the problem of racism in society or in the workplace. And I've seen this happen a couple of times recently where people have used the term racism as sort of catch-all to mean anything that they didn't like. So the first example was a group of participants on a workshop I was running, and they were asked to critique a um, case study regarding uh, an acquisition of two companies and some actions that management took as part of that change management process that were unpopular with the workforce. Now, at no point in that case study does it give any um, inference as to the racial or ethnic origin of anybody as part of this fictitious case study, whether they were management or whether they were customers or whether they were uh, employees. 
But one group of, of um, participants on it came back to me and said, well, we don't like the um, decision that was made. It's incredibly racist. So I asked them, well, what makes you think it's racist? What are the specific actions that we're taking that you think are racist and the impact? Um, and they didn't really have anything other than we don't like it. So when I had a conversation with them about it to try and un- get their understanding of where they were coming from, it really boiled down to two things. The first was, as I say, I don't like the decision, therefore the decision must be racist. And then secondly, well, we're assuming that management must be white and the workforce must be from a variety of ethnic minorities. And I said, well, why would you assume that the company wasn't owned by somebody from an ethnic minority? There are plenty of companies that are owned by people from ethnic minorities. Why would you automatically think that the the owner happened to be white? And they didn't really have an answer to either of those either of those points. And and the second example was a presentation that you, you and I were both at a couple of weeks ago, um, where the presenter in talking about um, inequality in pay between men and women in the workplace already in the first sort of 15, 20 seconds had sort of shoehorned in some of the, you know, EDI buzzwords, you know, white supremacy, patriarchy, colonialism, and racism. And it just got me thinking because the topic was an interesting one and I, was, and I wanted to learn more about their research into it and, and how they'd come up with their ideas. But what I was deflected with was this idea was, well, how does inequality between men and women's pay potentially, how is that linked to racism? Because it was never really explained how it did. It was just like, well, it's racist and therefore this is how it's happened. And again, it seemed to be, well, is this truly the case or is this just another way of picking up a word that people are going to um, – you know, identify with or a word that's going to be contentious and use it as a way of like clickbait. And my problem was, say, with people doing this is that it devalues actual situations where we have racism in society or the workplace because if we call everything racism, then what happens when we come across an actual racist or an actual racist behavior? A little bit like the boy who called Wolf. Um, and it also means that it stops us from having a conversation because if we can't both have a common understanding of what these words mean, then how can we discuss and look for a way forward? Well, I, I suppose, too, one of the issues that's being raised, apart from understanding and clarity about what's being said is the notion that when you're um, maybe it's the analogy of the, the, the boy or girl who cried wolf, just the notion that if you're, if you're referring to everything as, as, as a white supremacist, then you're really undermining the argument around something that's actually of, of more greater concern, like institutionalized racism or, or, or actual racism or um, these, these other, um, um, or other Im- important issues that need to be that need to be addressed, right? One hundred percent. Because then, if everything's white supremacy and racism and neo Nazi, when one's a Nazi, then what happens when you come up against a real white supremacist, a real racist, and a real Nazi? Because you've used up the words for that. Because you described somebody you disagreed with, or somebody you had a different you know, view to you on something, um, or something. You know that that's who you've used up those words. 
And now, or, con- you or conversely, word, right? Yeah, or yeah, or yeah. conversely, yeah. when you're undermining, like when you do encounter real um, unconscious bias, then now suddenly you're you're not actually talking about unconscious bias anymore. You're not talking about something that each of us can do. One of the things that's highlighted around um, uh, around a lot of this, these conversations is that so many people react badly to the term racism by implying that you are a racist. As a, and it's much easier to have conversations with people about unconscious bias because we can understand that that's something we all share. And when you're misusing terms in the way that you've described, you're not engaging in a discussion. No, exactly. And, 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 it, and therefore, it may be done with the best of intentions. I'm not always sure it is, but it may be done with the best of intentions. But it doesn't have the intended effect because all it does is start to shut people down. I, I, there were the example there with the presenter that started talking, and we were within the first 20 seconds, starts talking about white supremacy in the workplace. I, I sort of just found myself not listening to them because I'm just like, they had some good points to make, but they've to me, they've, 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 that's gone because I'm just like, well this is just the same thing you're you're throwing all these buzzwords into the first 30 seconds of your presentation um which really don't address what you're really talking about uh, which was an important topic which was worth exploring but you know and i know that the counterclaim towards me for saying that would say well you've got white fragility then which is another one of saying why just looking you're not engaging people in the audience because they've just switched off i had now, I'm sure I wasn't the only person because I'm just like, this isn't what you're not talking about white supremacy here. That's not what white supremacy is. And I was thinking about that and then stopped listening to the other stuff they were talking about. So, um, which well, was a shame I, because when I looked at the presentation afterwards, there were some things there that were worth talking about. And if they focused on that, that would have been much more engaging, in my opinion. There's also a cue here in the way that you described it. This person was making a presentation and dropping in a bunch of buzzwords. And what you were really aching for was a conversation around um, uh, unconscious bias in the workplace. And there's so much more that can be done when it's a conversation, when you're engaging your audience rather than when you're lecturing or talking to the audience. When people can have a conversation around um, around what these words are and how they have experienced their meaning in their own lives for better or for ill, whether they are the passive actor or uh, whether they've made missteps, that's where real learning occurs. Yeah, absolutely. And then you, and because if you're wanting to persuade people to a point of view, actually engaging in a, in a conversation with somebody and finding out, oh, this is how I see things. How do you see it? And, and, and that starts to see some movement. Anything I've ever noticed in my life has, has, has been moved my thinking has been when I've been involved in a conversation and somebody's posed something from a different perspective. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it like that. But but trying to just, you know, just put everything under the same umbrella and just stringing out the usual stuff that you would see on, you know, a seemingly, uh, you know, a college student's, activist ball that you're just flying out at someone is not he's not going to I don't think going to land other than people say well I don't want to be seen to disagreeing with it so I'm just going to say okay but are they really going to take it on board and do anything different I, I don't think so so you're really advocating for using words uh, using words with their appropriate meaning in an effort to really effect actual change yeah, if you want to make change, then then say if, if just you know, we have you know, gone on for for a, for a little bit on there, but you know if if something is actually you believe is racist, then call that out, but have that conversation about that. Don't just use it as a term that blankets everything. Everything is white supremacy. Everything is racism. 
you know, without being, being being specific about being specific with your language, because otherwise you can't get into a, a, a dialogue and gain understanding because you're just misusing it and then people not uh, are, are confused about what you're talking about um, and have a potential just to switch off with it. Well, there we go. There's our, um, I think we've got six recommended resolutions for our listeners. Let's summarize them for our listeners. The first one was make mistakes and make more mistakes because if you're making mistakes, then you're actually doing something. The second resolution from you, Russell, was don't let your past dictate your future. Our third was be childish, be playful. And Russell, why don't you take the other three? Okay, so our fourth one was that the only person's behavior you can change is your own. Our fifth one was about being selfish, okay, focusing on your needs, and finally uh, to stop misusing words and expanding their meaning so it becomes confusing for people. Well, that wraps up this episode, our first of 2023. We hope that you enjoyed it. Remember to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Share the link with your friends and colleagues. And remember, you can always reach out to us at the email address in the show notes. Goodbye for now, and we'll effing talk to you again soon. Goodbye.